If you've got a Bible, open up to the book of Revelation. Yes, I said it. <laughs> the book of Revelation. It's the last book uh, of your New Testament. And uh, I know that you're probably like, are we going to talk about Tim LaHaye and Left Behind? No. No, <laughs> um, but uh, we are starting a brand new series today through um, the uh, chapters two and three of Revelation. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but this new series we're calling Red Letters, Red Letters, Jesus Speaking to the Church. So I want to throw this out as we kind of jump in today to kind of uh, frame up this series. What if Jesus were to walk among us for a month and hang out at our church, right? Like he did it kind of stealthy and you didn't know it was him, you know? Um, he kind of joined your community group, hung around here, served, did greeting team, was a part of our services for a month. He didn't know it was him. And, uh, and then like at the end of the month, he like goes, surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's me, right? The one you've been worshiping all along. Um, that'd be kind of weird, but it wouldn't be unlike him. After the resurrection, he did that to some folks on the road to Emmaus. But my thought is, my question is, if that were to happen, what do you think he would say about our church? What do you think, what do you think he would say? What do you think he would like? like what, do you, what do you think he would enjoy? What do you think, what do you think would be meaningful to him? What, what do you think he would critique? What, what do you think if he were to see certain things in our church, it would make him cringe, right? And I know some of you already kind of have your own list of things you would like to say, right? Um, and you're going, I'll just do that on my Yelp review of this church. Um, however, you, the question is, what do you think Jesus would want for our church? What do you think he would want? So, so here's, why those questions are relevant. I think those are massive questions. Those are important questions. We ought to be thinking about those kinds of questions. If that's nothing you've thought about before, um, I'd encourage you to think about it because when you talk about the church, you're not talking about other people or a building. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're talking about yourself, right? Like we are the church. We, we are the church. And so what would Jesus want of us? And so these are big questions, but we don't have to let them go unanswered. That's the whole point of this series, right? When, when it comes to the church, Jesus has some specific thoughts about it, and he's not left us to choose our own adventure. He's actually addressed these thoughts in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. So here's what's gonna happen over the next seven weeks. There are seven letters to seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And uh, we're gonna take one letter each week over the next seven weeks. And so this is where we're gonna be for a little while. And uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, turn to Revelation chapter two, because our first letter today that we're gonna jump into is the letter to the church at Ephesus. Letter to the church at Ephesus. So get us kicked off this morning. Uh, there's a long passage that I want to read. So we have context and we're caught up to speed on all of this. We're going to start back in chapter 1, verse 10 and read on down through chapter 2, verse 7. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. The words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, here's how I want us to kick this off. I'll read this passage. I'll pray. And then we'll jump into the sermon from there. Sound good? Uh, I'm super convinced. Super chipper this morning. All right. Let's, let's try it. Uh, so Revelation chapter one, beginning in verse 10, the voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in their midst of the lampstands was one standing like the son of, uh, that looked like the son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you today that you speak to us. Thank you today that you are living and active. Thank you today that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword that addresses us and it meets us in any kind of anxieties we have, fears we have, depression we have. Your word meets us. You join us. You're not embarrassed of us. You don't cast us off. You invite us to come close. And so Jesus, together we confess in this moment, this church is yours. This next 30 minutes is yours. And would you protect us from the evil one, we pray, God. Would you gather up our minds? Would you shape us as your church? We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, do you remember um, when you were in elementary school, those, uh, those story problems that they would give you in math class? These little story problems where it's like a sentence or two or it's a little paragraph and they create a little scenario and like hidden in the scenario is like this math equation, this math problem that you're supposed to, to figure out and to solve. You remember these? I hated them. <laughs> I hated them with all my heart. And you know why? Because the point of them was played out on me. I couldn't understand how to get to the story, the problem, the math problem. I always got caught up in the fluff. I would find all the details in the story, all the things that didn't matter. I just couldn't find the point of it that I was supposed to do my math equation with, right? So I got caught up in all the fluff. Exactly what you're not supposed to do happened to me. The point of them is to think critically and find the equation. I seem to have a difficult time of this. So I remember this all too well because when I was in third grade, a moment that I'll never forget in my whole life uh, happened with my mom and I and a story problem stared us in the face for like 30 minutes. It was about Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. It's a great place, you should go there. 
they have amazing surfboards and all kinds of cool stuff, but um, this was a mythical place, of course, and the whole story problem uh, was about the exporting and importing of surfboards. And so I was getting lost in all this. It seems like today I figured it out. Well, I've grown since then, but on this night, it completely dumbfounded me. My mom sat down with me to help in the, the whole assignment, and she starts into reading, and here's where things took a sharp left turn. Right turn, left turn, whichever way you're looking at me. She starts in and she goes, Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. And I looked at her and I said, no, 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 no. She goes, what do you mean? I said, Fantastic Sam's Surf Shop. This is what I said, Fantastic Sam's. I said, no, you said Fantastic Sam's with a V. It's Fantastic Sam's with an F. Fuh, fuh right? And she goes, that's what I said, fantastic Sam's. I go, no, you said fantastic with a V, V, V. And so she said, that's what I said. And I said, no, 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 F sounds, mom, F sounds. F, family, yeah, family. No, friends, friends. No, Valentine's Day, you can say like that. You can't do F words like that. So for the next 30 minutes, my mom and I are having an argument about phonics, right? I'm nine and I'm teaching my mom how to say F words. Incredible, right? This goes on for 30 minutes. We're doing this back and forth, arguing about F sounds. And all the while, that pesky little story problem about the importing and exporting of surfboards, simple math, simple addition, simple subtraction, we're lost in the Fs and V sounds, right? The story problem worked. And so we do this all the time. We get, we get caught up in all of our lives about the fluff, the things that are periphery details that very often in different areas of our lives, relationships, things at work, meetings we're caught up in, conversations we're having, we're missing the heart of them because we're distracted by all these other things around it that aren't actually the point of what's going on. And I bring that up today because we often do this with the church. We often do this with the church, that it's the peripheral things. It's the things that at the end of the day don't make a big difference, but at the end of the day for us, sometimes it's like the primary thing. And so uh, I made a list of things that we often do this with. So when I was growing up, one of the things that it seemed that church was about was the dress code. It seemed like the church was about the dress code. Like it was wear your Sunday's best, where you can get that phrase. So you've got to have your shirt pressed. You've got to have your pants pleated. You've got to have your loafers on. You've got to be wearing your Sunday's best. And then I would hear things in the car leaving church, things like, can you believe that so-and-so was wearing such and such? And it's like, I don't want to wear this. Do I have to wear this? Is the only reason I'm wearing this, the reason you're not talking about me, is this about what we're wearing, right? The church was about what you're wearing, the dress code. Another way we do this is that we make church about a moral code. And so uh, church becomes this place that what this is primary about, uh, we're singing songs or reading the Bible, we're praying prayers. What this is primarily about is your moral standards. That's what this is primarily about. And so what's gonna end up happening is we'll have conversations about one another. I hear other churches do this, but this doesn't happen at Frontline. I hear gossip happens out there among Christians, but certainly not here. And so you're safe. Um, no, we're those people too. So... Um, we laugh because it's true and painful and we keep from crying. So, uh, but it's gonna be like, we're gonna have conversations. Can you believe that person was doing that? And we're gonna make sure they come into our presence and know we don't approve of that. And so the church becomes about a moral code. If it sounds slimy, it's because it is. Um, or, or here's another way we do it. We, we make church this whole thing. We're getting together. We're doing this whole thing. We're singing, we're praying, we're reading, we're praying. We're doing all that we're doing just to have a faith-based political platform. 
that what we do is we make church about political positions. And to feel better about it, we'll make it a faith-based political position and so we can feel good about a Christian politic, right? Is that what this is about? Or, or here's one we hear often, that, that because we live in a consumeristic age where um, we'll, we'll church hop and we'll church shop, right? And so you'll hear things like, I like the preaching over there, I like the worship over there, and they have like six flags for kids over there, so that's pretty cool. And then, and then what you'll end up hearing is, well, but that church, I didn't like their worship style. I didn't like their worship style which is an interesting kind of a comment, right? Because since when is worship for you? That's kind of crazy, right? Like, since when is worship for you? So um, if, since when are drum builds for you in a song? Since when is the cool guitar lick, like, for you? Like, since when is the lyric and the bridge of the song for you? Those things are for Jesus. Like, if anyone gets to decide if he liked the worship style or not, it's Jesus, Right? So these are things we say. We make church about these things and we decide where we're gonna be based on these things. And so that conversation has everything to do with this series in the red letters because what's gonna happen over the next several weeks is Jesus is gonna speak plain. He's gonna speak clear about the heart of the church, what he thinks about the church, like cut out the moral code, cut out the dress code, cut out the political positions. Those things at the end of the day, we're gonna see just at the end don't matter and Jesus is gonna speak loud and clear what he thinks about the church. And there's one of the things that's gonna be difficult and beautiful about this series is there's gonna be no mistaking what he says. <laughs> that's beautiful because it's like, oh, I heard Jesus clear. It's difficult because it's like, oh, I heard Jesus clear and I've gotta deal with it. But these letters are beautiful because he speaks plain. And so here's just one of the things I wanna say as your pastor. This is, I can't think of a more important series for us as a church right now. Uh, our elders pray, prayed long and hard about when we would do this. We're, we're 14 years old as a church. Frontline, we're, we're 14 years old. So if you're new, uh, welcome to the teenager us. Um, if you've been around for a while, um, you, you've become this teenager with us. But here's one of the things about being 14 years old. Um, being an adolescent at 14 is a lot like being an adolescent church at 14. You think you know stuff by now, you think you can do stuff by now, and so you can just autopilot at this point. And so I just wanna say as your pastor, man, I've been praying like crazy that God would spare us from thinking that as a church we can autopilot. That just because we have a building and we have stuff and we have programs and, and there's 1,400 people here on weekend services that, that we can just sort of coast and like do things nice and neat and keep it as a pretty church. Like, that's what I want us to war against and that's what Jesus is gonna to speak to us about in these letters. And so that's why I'm so excited about this series. That's why I'm so excited about this series. So as we jump in, here's a little context for Revelation. I know there's lots of thoughts about it and there's lots of obstacles for different kinds of people. This is the book, if you're reading the New Testament, you're like, oh, I'm there. It's gonna be about like chips in your hand and stealth bombers and all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're better off. If you do know what I'm talking about, you know it's really worth laughing at. Um, so the book of Revelation, it was written by the apostle John. Um, so you think about who he is. He was one of the 12 disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the John who wrote that gospel. This is also him writing this book of the Bible. At this point where he wrote this book, he was a very, very old man. And he was held as a prisoner by Rome, by the Caesar for having followed Jesus. They exiled him to get him out of their midst for proclaiming Jesus. They exiled him to the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of modern day Turkey. And that's where he penned this letter. 
And so you read it at the beginning of our service today where it says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and a vision came to me. So the book of Revelation comes to a vision that the Lord showed up to him. He spoke to him some things about his victory over Satan, over sin, over death. Jesus speaks to him very clearly uh, about what's to come for the church and where things are headed. He speaks to them about how to stand firm in the midst of a hostile culture and how to wait his appearing when he establishes his kingdom once and for all. If you're scared of the book of Revelation, let me give it to you in a sentence, right? Two words, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Like that's the book of Revelation in two words, one sentence. That's what you need to understand as you're reading through this book, right? So Jesus wins. And so he at the beginning of Revelation, chapters two and three, where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time the next few weeks, he gives seven letters to seven churches, right? These were actual churches in actual cities. These seven cities, these seven churches uh, in the first century were sort of like uh, hubs for mission. They were large churches, influential churches. They were in uh, very desirable cities. They were in big cities. So that's why they carried a lot of influence for the other churches in surrounding areas of that day. And so these seven churches were receiving these specific letters that addressed them in that specific time. But the way we understand that is that these seven churches, Jesus is talking to them as types, as a standard that all churches across all time, across all places would benefit. And so what he says to these churches, he says with a living and active word, even to us, right? So these words have everything to do with where we find ourselves today. And we'll jump in now to the first letter, the church at Ephesus, chapter two, verse one. Let's look back at it. It says this, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he said in the above passage, what the stars and lampstands mean. Uh, the stars are um, sort of imagery for angels. So he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Jesus has authority over them. He commands them to do ministry to his people. And then he says, he'll walk among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. So the idea is that lampstands emanate light. Jesus is the light of the world, the church is the lighthouse that emanates the light of Christ to this world, carrying out his present day ministry as a resurrected king, right? So we are his resurrected people doing the hands and feet, the work of Jesus in our city. So the lampstands are the church. So it, this is who Jesus is. He has authority over all things, even the church. And now he begins his words, verse two. He says, I know your works, I know your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves prophets and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. So right out of the gate, Jesus has some really strong words of encouragement for this church. These are words of commendation. These are words of doting. These are words of blessing. So he says some things here that if I'm the pastor, and, and I guess I am, right? Uh, but if I'm the pastor of this church and I were to go, um, I would love Jesus to say some things to our church. These would be the list of things I'd want him to say. Like this is the list I would go, I would hope Jesus says this. So he says the first thing, he says, I know your works. Like I know your toil. I, I know what you're up to. I, I see you. I, I, I observe what you're, what you're doing is not going unnoticed. You're working hard. So the church at Ephesus, the reason he says this is this is a church that you can look back at their history in the book of Acts chapter 18 through 20. This is a church that worked hard for their city. 
Like they worked hard for the good of their city. They served the poor. They were uh, supporting the hurting. They were helping people get their lives back together, back on their feet. This church took injustice very, very seriously. It says here they couldn't bear with evil. They couldn't stand it. And so uh, they had a high regard for justice and for mercy in their city. They took injustice very seriously. And so Jesus says, I know your works. I know the good that you're doing. I know that you're not just gathering and then it's a holy huddle, but you're out there in the city helping people. I know your works. This is the first thing he commends. The next thing in verse two, it says that they have called out false prophets. You've tested those who call themselves prophets and they're not. And so this church had really good doctrine. This church was spot on when it came to theology. Their theology was precise. They probably had people on their church staff that were on the Gospel Coalition blog uh, blowing the whistle on heretics. Uh, They were uh, doctrinal watchdogs, right? In fact, one of the things we know about this church, the Apostle Paul planted it. Timothy, those letters of 1 and 2 Timothy, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And then the Apostle John was an elder there. So you talk about like an awesome church staff These guys were writing the Bible uh, better than Gospel Coalition. So um, they had sound doctrine. um, And then in verse three, he gives the third commendation. He says, you've not grown weary. You've not grown weary. You are bearing up patiently. You are enduring patiently in the Christian life. And Jesus says about those three things, I like that about you. I like that about you. And just a couple of things about what was going on um, in Ephesus, why they were enduring patiently, I think it's helpful for us. Um, they were enduring against the winds of culture. So in Ephesus, there was, um, it was a city that was wildly progressive and sexual promiscuity was rampant. There was um, a high worship of the Greek god Artemis there. There was a massive temple. It's become one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, it's even still, still there today. And so you can, uh, the, the worship of Artemis was um, that you would go to the temple and you would perform sexual rituals with temple prostitutes. And so this was happening in the midst of Ephesus. And then there was a group of people called the Nicolaitans who called themselves Christians. This passage talks about them. And in their day, they believed that one of the ways you could worship Jesus was by going to the temple to perform whatever kind of sexual act you wanted. So what they would say is uh, sexual prohibitions, that was all Old Testament. We're in New Testament now. He's fulfilled all of those prohibitions. Now, whatever kind of ecstasy you want to worship Jesus with, hey, go do that. And the church at Ephesus was like, y'all are crazy. We're out on you. Stop that heresy, right? And so um, this was what was happening. They endured patiently with the Nicolaitans. And then not only that, we know from first century history that this was a period of great persecution against the church. Ephesus was a dangerous place to be a Christian. It was a danger. Uh, Caesar's influence was massive there and people were being confiscated. People were being kidnapped. People were being brutally persecuted and murdered by Caesar. Church history tells us that he would dip Christians in burning tar. He would burn them on stakes to function like torches at his house parties. Um, To be a Christian in Ephesus might've just meant you signed your death letter. So, So we have We have baptism celebrations and then afterward families applaud and they go to have lunch and they probably do this whole thing. You got baptized today and I don't know, maybe the families that go extra on this, they're like, hey, here's a certificate. You got baptized today. Hey, in Ephesus, baptism might've just been signing your death warrant, right? That was Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. It was a dangerous, dangerous moment. So like the moment we do after singing where we turn and greet one another, 
we welcome one another. The reason we do that has great, great heritage in the church. So for like first century Christians, that moment was full of worship for them because it might just be the last time they get to see each other. What was happening between Sundays and the first century persecution, it might be the last time you get to hug that brother or sister. And so being a Christian in Ephesus was difficult. Hey, listen, it was dangerous. And they were bearing patiently in all of that. They were enduring this. And Jesus looks at all of that and he goes, I like that about you. I like that about you. And so um, when it comes to this, you go, here's this church. Here's this church that was serving their city like crazy. Here's this church that had amazing doctrine. Their theology was sound. Here's this church who was enduring patiently. This is a great church. Like if this is a church that if you're reading, you go, I wanna be a part of that church. If your child graduates high school and goes off to college in Ephesus, which they can't do, but if that were to be the case, you would go, hey, go to that church. That's the church you wanna be at. So, So here's what's interesting though. Three verses, three encouragements, but in the middle of all of that, verse four is about to happen and Jesus is going to warn this church and us. So look back at verse four. Verse four, it says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand unless you repent. So did you hear what Jesus just said? He says, I love your hard work. I love your good theology. I love that you hold to the Bible. I love your endurance against the tides of culture. But notice the language he says, but this I have against you. Like this is the moment if we're the church at Ephesus, this letter gets delivered to us. The pastor Timothy stands up on a Sunday morning. He reads this letter to the church from Jesus about them, about what's happening. He reads the first three verses. Everyone's chest starts to inflate a little bit. Jesus is proud of us. And you get to verse four. And then it feels like there's a punch in your chest. The language, but this I have against you. But this I have against you. You've left your first love. But but this I have against you. You've left your first love. Now this is terrifying. And this was was terrifying to prepare this week. Because if I'm going to be honest, says your pastor, by God's grace, if I look at the church at Ephesus, one of the things that's freaky about this is this is frontline. Like this is us. Of all the churches that I've kind of looked through in these seven letters, if there's any week that like, that's us, like this is reading our mail, it's this one. Like, I mean, just even the word on the street about frontline, hey, they are particular about their doctrine and theology at frontline. They are ruthless about serving the needy and the poor and the marginalized in their city, right? We're active in those things. We haven't capitulated to culture. If you're around here for any length of time, like we get, we get hit from either side of culture on ways that we, we critique. For some, we're too conservative. For some, we're too liberal, right? And so this is freaky because it's like, man, I feel like he's reading our mail. And then it says, but this I have against you. And so let that just pause for a second. Let, just, just sit on that. Because what this passage is saying is it's entirely possible, it's entirely possible to be a church, to be a Christian that would pursue theological purity. It's possible to serve the city. It's possible to endure patiently against the tide of culture, yet at the same time, be empty of the power and the presence of Jesus. Like that stings. Good theology, good serving in the city, enduring patiently, 
no Jesus, no Jesus. And so here's what's, here's what's hard about this, because I know that for tendency for most of us is that what we wanna do is we wanna judge our life with God based on, based on our good and bad deeds, right? So we wanna go, hey, lately, uh, I've been doing more good stuff than bad stuff. And so uh, case closed, examination's done, me and God are good, right? Like, I'm not perfect, like I certainly sinned, so, but, but, but good stuff has outweighed my bad stuff. So uh, I don't need to, to go introspective on this. Like, I'm good, me and God are, are good. And we wanna weigh our life with God and our assurance based on our deeds. But what we know about this church is that when they received this letter, it was about 40 years after this church was planted. So Acts 18 through 20, again, that's where the church is planted. Revelation 2, 40 years between them. And somewhere along the way in those 40 years, they had become civilized, they had become domesticated, they had built buildings, and their discipleship had been replaced. Listen, their discipleship had been replaced from deep and honest affections for Jesus and in exchange, just strong morals and traditional values, right? So instead of having deep, heartfelt, honest affection for Jesus, I'm just gonna feel good about myself because I am morally sound and I have traditional values. Culture, deal with it, right? So somewhere along the way, in those 40 years, they had replaced a pure and simple devotion to Jesus and they had just become okay with external religion. So I bet their confession assurance, their liturgy was awesome. Their songs were awesome. Uh, they were morally upright. They had all the kind of pretty on the outside, but that's where it stopped. They were only surface deep, right? On the outside of this church, if we were to have walked around the church at Ephesus for a month, you know, like the scenario I just created a while ago, if we were to walked among them for a month and they hired us as a consultant, we would have been hard pressed to find anything wrong with this place. We would have thought these guys are crushing it. And yet they had no heart. And yet they had no heart. And see, here's how I'll sum it up. At some point in this church's history, they had become so preoccupied with fulfilling what they thought was their calling for Jesus, living their lives for Jesus, that they had forsaken that their first calling was to Jesus. They become so preoccupied in living a life for Jesus that they forgot Jesus. The MO of this church, to say it another way, was, hey, Jesus, watch this. Hold my communion juice. Watch what I'm about to do. Like, that was the MO of this church. And so just to step back, I, I, can, I can hear the objections in the room, right? I can hear the objections in the room on this. Because there's a temptation in reading something like this to think that this warning from Jesus to return back to our first love is just a suggestion, right? But like, look at all the good things I'm doing. Like, why are you being so nitpicky about my affections? Like, why? Are, so, so what we'll do is we'll hold this at a sentiment level and we'll go, oh, Jesus, he wants me to return to my first love. He's my first love. We'll romanticize this in Jesus, my first love. But we'll hold that at a sentimental level. We'll hold that at a knowledge level. We'll just feel good about the fact that we know more about the Bible and what Jesus says and he's our first love. But at the end of the day, we, we have no intention of actually following him here. We're taking him serious here, what we want to do with this and go, oh, that's really cool. The Bible says that Jesus is my first love. That would be a really cool thing, like on my Twitter profile, or that'd be a really cool thing to throw on a bumper sticker or even like a, wall, a, a wallpaper on the background of my phone. But I'm not going to live in that. I mean, Jesus, thanks for your suggestion, but I got this. I got this. 
Now, I know none of us say that out loud, but isn't that in our hearts? And so what he's saying, and and I think we need to go back to verse five to notice the urgency of what he's saying. Look at verse five again. He says at the end of verse five, but if you don't repent, and so if not, look at what he says, in case you thought this was just sentiment, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember the lampstand, right? The lampstand is all about our authority and our place as a church. So he says, unless you repent, unless you hear me on this, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your place as a church. This is the removal, Jesus is saying, I'll remove my presence and my power from among you. And so what he's saying is, unless you repent of your external religion, unless you repent of the way that you've used your morality and your good theology and the way that you've used your good works as an excuse to actually have honest affections for me, unless you repent of that, you can continue to operate as a building. You can continue to operate as a people, but I will not be with you. Like This is a scary word. So let me just translate this for frontline. You can continue to have your beautiful 100-year-old cathedral in the middle of a growing city. You can raise money to revitalize a portion of your building to reach the next generation for years to come. You can continue to do all of that, have good theology, good works, good programs, good endurance against culture. You can raise money and have a phenomenal cathedral, but my presence will not be with you. So let me just ask you a question for a second. What is your life what is your life without the presence of Jesus? What is it? What is your life without the presence of Jesus? Like if Jesus were to sit over coffee with you and slip you a note, I don't know why this would happen, but just follow it for a second. And it said, after this, I'm not gonna be with you. Would you just kind of slip that in your pocket and thanks for the heads up? Does that feel like it would make much of a difference in your life? Or would that melt you? Does it bother you to think of Jesus removing his presence? Does it jar you to think about coming to this church singing songs, praying prayers, reading from the Bible, serving the hurting, calling. Hey, we can call ourselves whatever we want. Christians, if that's the term that fits best for you, call yourself a Christian. We'll call ourselves a church, but we'll do so without the presence of Jesus. Does it jar you to think that that could happen? What is your life without the presence of Jesus? If you're here today and you're, and you're not a Christian, <laughs> this probably sounds really strange to you. This, this probably sounds like, man, these people are weird. The presence of Jesus, what are you even talking about? We are weird. <laughs> we're, we're really weird. But we really believe that Jesus died and is resurrected and has poured out his spirit and his presence is everything to us. And if I don't have his presence, I don't have life. So the question I want us to get as we end today is like, what do we do, (laughs) right? So he gives us this commendation, this checklist. He says, I have this against you. You've left your first love, so what do we do? What Jesus is asking of us, look back at verses four and five and notice what he tells them to do. He says, but this I have against you. You've abandoned your first love, verse five. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So the first thing he says is remember, remember, remember where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. So think about where you are. I don't know any of the, anyone in this room who would say, I'm exactly where I want to be with God, right? Think about where you are. Think about where you want to be or where you think you ought to be and go, where have I fallen? Here's a few questions. Do you remember those early days of following Jesus? Remember those early days of following Jesus? Do you remember what it was like to have freshly experienced the forgiveness of sin? When you first experienced the forgiveness of sin, when your shame was lifted, when your guilt was removed, and your heart was filled with such love for Jesus that you just couldn't help but pray, whatever you want, the answer is yes. There's no asterisk on you. There's no, uh, let me get back with you. Just, I just want more of you because there's no one like you. No one has a voice like yours. No one has a love like yours. No one has presence like yours. No one sets me free like you do. Just more of you. Uninterrupted, more of you. Remember those early days. And so he says here, remember, remember. Remember the drift in your life. Consider where you have drifted. And he says to do a couple of things. He says, repent, which is just a word that means turn around. So you're walking this way, turn around. Like consider your drift, turn around. And then he adds this line, and do the works you did at first. Now that's a big line, right? Jesus says, you've lost your first love. So remember, repent, and do the work you did at first. Now, this is not choose your own adventure, right? It's not like you consider your own story and your own works and you just kind of go make up whatever those works are that you want them to be. He's talking about particular works he wants us to get back to. He's talking about something particular. He's talking to the church of Ephesus and when he would have said this, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have known exactly what works he was referencing. This church was started amidst a crazy revival. Like it was a citywide revival. People were turning from dark and crazy backgrounds toward Jesus. Revival broke out such that it says in the book of Acts 18 through 20 that there were silversmiths in their city whose whole job was to make little idols of Artemis so that people could buy them and take them and have them in their house. And it says that such revival broke out that their whole business was shut down because people were stopped buying idols. Like an entire industry shut down so a riot breaks out because these people are like, I gotta eat, buy my stuff. No one's buying it. So just think about it. What if it happened in our city? Like strip clubs, wholesale, done. People turn to Jesus, believe he's better and an entire industry is wiped out in our city. The beautiful, beautiful thing. But in the midst of all of that, we have so much writing on the church at Ephesus there's only one work in scripture that's referenced for the church. It's in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. It'll be on the screen. Look at what it says. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging of their practices. I love that language. They just walked out into the light. They divulged their practices, 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic, arts, witchcraft, they brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them. And it came about to 50,000 pieces of silver. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So, so here's the work. 
They were filled with such love for Jesus that they just walked every part of their life out into the light. All in the light. It says in front of everybody, confessing sin and divulging of practices. Like they just got out all the dirt, all the ugly, all the, all the shadow. They just rolled it out. I, it says they were so convinced by the power and the love of Jesus that they refused, they, this church refused to continue hiding in their shame. Everyone had shame. Temple prostitution is in their midst. And they just go, I'm not walking in that mess anymore. I'm walking that into the light. This church had no interest in managing their life. They had no interest in life management, sin management. They had no interest. There's no time to manage my sin. I want transformation. I want you to address my heart. I'm not just trying to piecemeal this together and plug holes and throw band-aids. Jesus, change me. So they just walked every piece of their life. And so they were confessing and bringing their darkness forward. Like they were trusting Jesus to heal them. Now I say all of that. I'm not trying to romanticize it because if people start saying the stuff that they were saying, it's going to get messy. I've been sleeping around with temple prostitutes, but Jesus has changed me. Church help. I've been addicted for years. Church help. I have neglected my kids. I've left my wife. I've left my husband. I've been practicing witchcraft, but Jesus has ruined me. Church, I'm walking out. Here's what's so beautiful about that. It was messy, but here's what I love. It says they were confessing their sins, divulging their practices, and the word of the Lord went forward mightily, which means, i.e., it wasn't weird when they did that stuff. What? So it became normal that they could say freakish darkness in their heart and people weren't gonna stiff arm them for it. People weren't gonna judge them for it. People weren't gonna step away and raise their eyebrows at them. They confessed craziness. And it was like, me too, me too. Let's look to the cross together and find help. I, so what does this mean for us? couple of things if you're taking notes. Number one, Christianity, when you look at this church, is not about trying harder. Please hear me on this. Following Jesus is not about trying harder. The reason that so many of us are frustrated following him is because that's been our MO. Just try harder, just do better, just grit it out, just repress yourself and just try harder. And then the cycle of shame keeps continuing and we wonder why. Confessing Jesus is not trying harder. Following Jesus is confessing more. That's Christianity. Not try harder, confess more. Just keep confessing. I need help. I need protection. I need purity. I need, I need honesty because I don't want to be honest. I, I, Jesus, confess, 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 and watch him transform. Jesus is not interested in your best efforts. He threw one forward that trumps all of them. It's called perfect life and death for your sin. So he just says now, he just says now, come to me, confess, let me be king and let me heal. Let me transform. Let me transform. So there's two groups of people in the room. There's one group of you and you're here today and you're exhausted. Like it's been tough to even get through this sermon. You're exhausted. You're exhausted because there's sin in your life that you've been hiding for years. 
There's sin in your life, sin that you've just learned to justify, you've reasoned it out in your mind, you've learned to cope with it, and even though you know it's out of step with how you're supposed to walk, how you wanna walk, how the life, the, the version of yourself that you're projecting to everyone else, you're exhausted because you're too afraid to let anyone know about it, and so you just keep shoving it down. And it has these secret areas where it rears its head, but you just keep telling yourself that it'll be the last time, only for it to happen again tomorrow, and you do the same cycle again tomorrow. And so instead of really confessing your sin, so instead of really walking this out into the light, here's what's happening. You've instead determined that I'll just balance out my guilt problem with more religion. And so you'll come to church every week and you'll, 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 you'll do this thing. You have no real intention of dealing with this or you'll just make up a version of dealing with it in your mind. But you'll come each week not to deal with sin, not to get in front of Jesus, but just because it made you feel better for having come. And so this is a religious guilt-numbing game you play. That's one group in the room. And if I describe that with any accuracy, it's because I've been there too. I've been there too. There's another group in the room and you're here today and you don't have anything particularly dark to confess, but your heart is dry with love for Jesus and it's been years since you would say you last experienced his presence. If you were honest, you'd say, it's been years since I last experienced the warming presence of God. You're numb and you're callous. And it used to bother you that you haven't experienced God in a while. Like it used to bother you, you used to yearn, you used to ache, you used to pray. It used to bother you, but, but you just become used to it and numb to it. And you keep coming to church because you know it's what you're supposed to do. But if you're gonna be honest, you don't even know why you're here anymore. And you have doubts that rise up, but you feel guilty about those. So you just keep shuffing those down. And so now, on your best days, you're skeptical. On your worst days, you're completely out on all this. But you're too embarrassed to say anything about this because it feels dark and shameful to you. And you're not even sure if you talked about it out loud that God would help you anyway. That's too honest, huh? <laughs> so, so there's two groups in the room. I think, I think there's other groups in the room, but those are two predominant groups. If, if I didn't name you in the room of where you are with Jesus, I would just say, man, do some heart work. Figure out where you've drifted. But here's where I want to end today. This passage is so beautiful to us because it's calling us forward whatever place you find yourself in. Jesus isn't ostracizing anyone. He's calling us all forward. Here's to walk us into the light, not to expose you, but to save you. Not to expose you, but to save you. Jesus is addressing us, the church, in order to invite us to say, hey, stop trying to manage your sin. I want to transform you. It's a long journey, for, but I want to transform you. You don't got to put it together and put on a plastic facade. I want to change you. I want to change you. And so you don't have to hide from your sin anymore. If I want to, if we can just hear that. You don't have to hide from your sin. You know why? Because you've already been outed. You've already been outed. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus, eyes wide open on your sin, never flinched. He said, let me pay for it. Stop hiding because you've already been outed. You've already been outed. So here's just a couple of words at the end of this. If our church ever ceases to be gritty and honest, 
and I think in some ways we have, (laughs) if our church ever ceases to be gritty and honest, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. If our church ever becomes a place where people can't be honest about their shadows and their darkness, and this becomes a place that we're so sterilized with people who are just coming to put on a plastic face to pain themselves through an hour each week together, but can't talk about their real junk or their real places of drift. If that happens, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. Like one of the prayers I've prayed this week is that God, in the midst of a beautiful cathedral we get to meet in each week, that God would spare us from being a pretty church. And God spare us from being a pretty church with designer glasses and we call it a day, right? I only say that because I have some on. So if we don't repent here, here's what's gonna happen. If we don't repent here and return to our first love, Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. And we wanna think he's joking there, but, but he's a resurrected king. There's too much at stake for him to make jokes like that, right? And so if we don't repent here, here's what's gonna happen. If we don't repent here and we just keep doing our checkbox list of good theology, good works, and patient endurance, if we just keep playing plastic Christianity with good looks but no heart, here's what'll happen. Over time, we'll become jaded too and we'll just settle instead for craft cocktails and electric scooters. We'll just go, isn't this fun? but we know our hearts are dead and the electric scooters are too expensive anyway. And so, so here's a few things as we close. Um, some of you today need to confess of secret sin. Sin that you've been hiding for far too long. And Jesus says, I see you and I really love you and you don't have to be afraid come out. There's others of you that you need to confess a numb and a calloused heart. There's some of you today and and you need to confess, you need to confess skepticism and doubts and just ask Jesus to give you faith afresh, faith afresh. There's some of you that need to confess and just say, Jesus, I need you to help me with a renewed love for you. Like a renewed love. I I love that the the Puritans would talk about loving Jesus feelingly. I want to love him like that. So let us return to our first love. Here's the thing, Frontline. I'm calling you today. Jesus is calling us. Let us ruthlessly walk our lives out into the light and let confession of sin be the normal thing among us. When sin is quiet, that's abnormal. When sin is out loud, it, it feels like church. It feels like church. The last thing, I speak on behalf of our elders, the last thing we wanna do is gather each week to play games and put on a show. Like your time is too precious and the NFL is interesting enough to watch or take a nap during for us just to put on a show. Man, let's do church. And so however you're here today, believer, not a believer, I'm so glad you're here. This series, this letter is an invitation to be formed as the church of Jesus Christ. And the passage ends like this. He who has an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear.